Good morning, campers. Today's activities will include, oh, just wishing to find the man of my dreams, our true love somewhere out there. Lunch today will be organic berries, vodka, and hallucinogenic herbs. And to end the night, we will be burying another lover. What's up with that? So put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into The Love Witch. The Love Witch. Marishka Hargate, Sarah. Marishka Hargate, Sam. I am your camp counselor, Sam, an ex-pro wrestler in training and current drag wrestling manager and a powerful witch. Zap, zap. (laughs) And I'm camp counselor, Sarah just unlucky in love and we're here to ask is it camp we're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp we are not here to be the definitive experts on it but just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre the love witch the love witch <laughs> that's a reference Come on. <laughs> we, we are way too young for that. Too oh, young, and you our know. skin is too dewy and unlined. Mm-hmm. Us in our in our blossoming twenties. <laughs> I know how to eat something. Loki, Loki, eat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Love Witch. Both of us had not seen this before, obviously, because we're in Mystery Month, but did know about the aesthetics. And I think that that holds true for the rest of the movie. It is an incredible feat after seeing this movie. Just wowie, wow, wow, wow. How did they do this? <laughs> Well, um, I actually have some uh, some clues about that. I'm just going to dip into my background real quick. Uh, but let me find it here. Here are my notes. So, Anna Biller wrote, directed, produced, did this movie. Mm-hmm. Director. Yep. She was also the production designer. Okay, go on. She's also the costume designer. Mm-hmm. Of and course. She composed music for it. She is like normally when you see that in a film that the director is also many other things in the film, you are in for a slog because usually that I can think of who get away with this are Robert Rodriguez and Steven Soderbergh. And even they don't do that much. Yeah. I mean, I know like John Carpenter will mm, score yeah. his own movie and direct it and, and stuff. And usually that's pretty good. But whenever I see other f- filmmakers try to be this level of auteur, it always comes off as like, Oh no. Oh no! This is a movie <laughs> yeah. about like it's it's a it's an alien knockoff where you got quote unquote actors and, <laughs> and the cheapest special effects possible. Yeah, it's either the case of we have no money, so I'm going to do it all myself, 
and then that lack of money really shows up on the screen. Um, that is why Robert Rodriguez got started doing that, I think. And it's probably why John, I don't know as much about John Carpenter. Um, but my guess is that that's partly why he did that too. Yeah, it's it's the, the shoestring budget coupled with a very like, um, I don't know, can-do can John Carpenter attitude of, well, it's a passion project. Let's get it done, guys. Oh, look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you also get into the flip side where I was reading or listening to one uh, review of this movie where Mark Kermode, the film critic, was listing off everything that Anna Biller had done for it. And the other guy in it was like, oh, so she's a control freak. I don't think it's a control freak thing. Saying control freak about a movie like this, um, I, I don't think that's appropriate only because we don't use the word with other filmmakers who do this, right? Other filmmakers who have one notable difference from Anna Biller? A whole chromosome? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think we talked about it a little bit, but now that we've seen the whole movie. I think we have to discuss the look of this film in more depth for people who haven't seen it. Oh my God. The look is it's, it's um, stunning. Quite frankly, I was in love with this from scene one in terms of its aesthetics. The aesthetics of this movie are, I think the, it's what this movie is largely known for now, six years after it came out. But I think it's also the best thing that this movie does. That's not to yeah. uh, integrate anything else in the movie, but the reason why people are still talking about the love, which mainly is the aesthetics and it is gorgeous. It looks like it was made in the sixties. It has such rich color, such incredible eye to detail when it comes to somebody in 2015 saying i want to make a movie that looks just like the 60s except when i don't want it to look like the 60s in in specific things beyond that it hits those marks every time the the, the characters are costumed from that era their hairstyles, their the way their house is decorated, the way the camera is left. It's it, it really this this is a movie that I have to implore people. You you have to see it, or at least see a couple scenes of it to really understand what we're talking about. Yeah, the men's hair and the men's facial hair is the big thing that really stands out to me, especially because hair and makeup styling is one of those things that is so hard to nail in a period piece you know people also want to make it look appealing to nowadays so mm -hmm. uh i remember watching this movie i don't even remember what the movie was it was something i caught like channel serving in clips and it was a movie from around this time and it had a boy in like a, a dutch boy cut which is mm -hmm. obviously and this was set like in olden days renaissance or something like that the sort of time where yeah that's fitting but nowadays if you see somebody in a dutch boy or a page boy cut you're like that is incredibly unflattering this movie is not afraid to do that it will use period accurate well 
it's set in modern day. So yeah, aesthetics accurate, <laughs> aesthetics accurate hairstyling and makeup, which really impressed me. That is the, the mental disconnect in the film because you're watching it and you get so sucked into this idea that this is the 60s. It's taking place in the 60s. That's why people are talking this way and acting this way and dressing and looking and, and behave. All these things are period accurate. And then there's this, that scene later on in the film where somebody does something that is not period accurate and you go, hold on a second. What just happened? No, that's not right. This is a okay. mistake. So this is what you were referring to because Sam texted yeah. me and said there is a prop near the end of this movie that is going to blow your mind. And I didn't get it at the point. But are you referring to the cell phone? I'm referring to the cell phone. <laughs> Which is like a modern cell phone, too. Yeah, it's it's clearly an iPhone. And mm -hmm. it's just the fact that we've been through this whole film. There hasn't been a cell phone. There hasn't been a single computer. There's oh. been no reference to any of these modern things. And then a character whips out a cell phone and you go, I'm sorry, what? We've had this technology the whole time? Why That's haven't we been using these? Now, I sort of clued into this because I was reading a few things about this movie where it was suggesting that this movie is set in like an alternate universe or something like that, where it's the no. technology of, no, that's way overthinking. It's set in modern day and it has this aesthetic, like, just get over it. Um, but Trish pulls up in like a modern BMW when we first meet her. And that was mm -hmm. what made me first realize, okay, so we are not doing this as a slavish period piece. Yeah, I made a note of that too, but I I was able to kind of brush that away mm -hmm. thinking, okay, you know, it's a car. Maybe people aren't focusing on the cars anyways because most of the rest of the cast does drive classic cars. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, maybe for expediency's sake in terms of the film, we just grabbed a BMW, whatever. But when the cell phone popped up, I was like, there's also references to DNA tests where for most of the movie I was like are they going to bring this up at all because I'm unaware if DNA tests exist within the reality of this movie yeah I, I, I was I was certain that maybe the end of the movie it'll turn out like maybe this is a spell she's cast and everything around her is just 1960s aesthetic -ed. Or, or something. But no, the film's not interested in that because the film just wants to show you this gorgeous aesthetic that it's that the, the director, the film creator, has really dug into. So do you want to talk a little bit about Anna Biller and the background of this movie? No. I'm <laughs> sick of this subject. I'd rather talk about... No, no, go on. Uh, so I will warn you right now I sat down to write notes for background and this uh, particular point of view and I wound up writing like a little mini essay so please interject normally I'm going off notes but I wound up using full sentences paragraphs all that <laughs> please jump in whenever you like just have at it so today we're going to talk about the male gaze 
and exploitation films. I, and I, am, I am a, I am a male gaze. <laughs> <laughs> and sexploitation. Uh huh. And Russ Myers. And the death of the author. This is our first uh, ten-hour podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, buckle in, everyone. We're going to be here until tomorrow. Mostly, we're going to talk about the difference between Anna, how Anna Biller sees this movie, and how critics see this movie. Okay. Um, so I mentioned previously Mark Kermode's review on this. I'd like to credit both him and Kyle Calgren, who has a YouTube channel called Brows Held High. Um, as soon as I finished watching this movie, I wanted to see what other people had talked about uh, regarding it. And their reviews were what really set me down this path. Um, so we've talked already about how both of us saw clips of this movie before and had trouble believing it was made in this century. And of course, that's all down to Anna Biller. Mm -hmm. As she did everything short of starring in it and catering. And creating a time machine to <laughs> send the entire crew back to the 60s to film this film. Speaking of which, how is there not a makeup palette off of this? The saturated blue of the eyeshadow that you can see across the room at all times. Please, please. Yes. The I, eyeshadow I, I, makes the movie. I have a wrestling show next week and I'm like, I'm doing a love witch eye. It's going to be yes. so simple. I'm going to be in and out in terms of my makeup, <laughs> but I just want to do this because it's so gorgeous. Yeah. Cream lip, blue eye, big eyelashes, spot of blush. Yeah, done. Perfection. So uh, you actually already mentioned the secret word of this episode. The secret word is auteur. Yay! So for those of you who didn't waste thousands of dollars when you were 18 years old, auteur theory is basically the idea that there's a single author, auteur in French, of films. So Hitchcock is a classic example. You look at his films and you go, wow, these are all thematically and visually linked in a way that makes it seem like there is one clear authorial voice. And it doesn't have to be just a director of a movie. So you can look at George Lucas and say, George Lucas didn't direct most, quote unquote, George Lucas movies. Uh, he didn't direct the first three Star Wars films. He didn't direct the last three. He didn't direct any of the Indiana Jones films. But those are all still, you can look at them and say, oh, yeah, those are George Lucas movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, other examples of auteurs, we have the Tarantinos. <sighs> Um, Robert Rodriguez, which you said earlier, I think J.J. Abrams would definitely fall under that category now, but not to the levels that we would expect from somebody like a Hitchcock. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a quality thing. So, for example, no. Ed Wood was no tour, and I actually literally studied Ed Wood and in comparison with Tim Burton, obviously, uh, when I was learning in Film 1000 about auteur theory. Uh, you could also say Tom Cruise is an auteur, whether you want to divide that up into, oh, it's strictly in his role as an actor or strictly in his role as a producer is completely up to you. I don't think that's necessarily possible to divide the two. No, I, th I think it's just a the person with the vision in this, right? There, there are script auteurs as well, where you can definitely see, like, this person generally just writes scripts. 
but what they create from that, you can see the thematic elements coming through again and again. Yeah, like I would argue that um, Aaron Sorkin or Shonda Rhimes are both auteurs in that way. Yes, great examples. Um, and you can also argue somebody like Billy started out as a writer and then gradually got the cachet to be able to direct his own still argue you know was he a better writer was he a better director that sort of thing um but yeah it's the idea that out of the hundreds sometimes thousands of people working on a movie there is one person who is the author um i didn't really get into against auteur theory um but again it's like a very it started out as a sort of very fanboyish way of looking at films people looking at westerns by john ford and things like that saying there is a distinct john ford movie and it doesn't matter who else worked on it Mm -hmm. if we want to for the purposes of this episode buy into yes auteur theory is a thing and it's real then anna biller is an auteur because literally nobody else unless you want to pick somebody who like literally had nobody else touch the movie, Anna Biller is the auteur. If there's anyone that you can trust to know with a capital K about this movie, it's Anna Biller. (laughs) If it's on the screen in The Love Witch, it's because Anna Biller wanted it to be there. She was collecting costumes for for years and years. The pentagram rug that um, she lies down on when she performs her spell... Anna Biller made that by hand over six months because she couldn't find one. Oh, my <laughs> God. I know. So what kind of movies sprang to mind when you watched this? What movies do you compare it to? Uh, I get a definite feeling of like a hammer horror kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it definitely... Because of the, the mystery and the... Oh, we're definitely saying witches exist magic exists um there's an exploitation feel to it uh but more of a like a sexploitation film you know this this loose woman who just wants to fuck oh the fucking has run her over the edge and now she's gone too wild and now she's murdering people <laughs> spoilers uh <laughs> But that that's really about where I stopped with it. I think, and those both come down to more of an aesthetic quality than anything else. Yeah, if you want to talk about, about aesthetics, I see like a lot of comparisons to classic Star Trek too. That rich color saturation and mm-hmm. the sort of fakiness of it all. If you want to lean into the horror stuff, there's like you said, there's Hammer Horror, there's um, Adam's Family. Like this is a Morticia in pastels. Mm-hmm. Past- There's no Re- really pastels. <laughs> um, there's an argument that you could bring in re- revenging woman horror, like Last House on the Left, or I Spit on Your Grave, something like that. And then there's the people that we've already mentioned, like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, where it's genre pastiche and homage. Um, some of the uh, clips that Kyle Calgren used was blending Grindhouse in with clips of this. And fundamentally, other than the color saturation, there's very little difference visually 
in brief clips between this and Grindhouse, especially during the uh, burlesque scenes. Yes, yes, yes. Because it is about that, like, that sort of seedy nature that we don't see in Hollywood films, right? It's the independent film circuit that would be just like, fuck yeah, I found these burlesque dancers who want to be in a movie. Cool, shove them in. Um, most critics pointed out was a comparison to Russ Meyer's exploitation films, like you already mentioned. Uh, sorry, it's Russ Meyer. I keep calling him Russ Meyers. I apologize for <laughs> I can't get it out of my head. But Russ Meyer was an American filmmaker, arguably another auteur. It's known for the movies Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which is also a great song. It's on our uh, list. <laughs> and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Oh, yeah, we're absolutely getting to Russ Meyer someday. Um, mm-hmm. So he made movies that satirized values of the time, and Tarantino would be nothing without yeah. Russ Meyer. <laughs> I can't emphasize that hard enough. If Russ Meyer had never made a film, Tarantino would be like a Walmart store clerk right now because there would <laughs> never have been this, like, oh my God, I can do that in a movie? Wow. Exactly. Or his work would only be stealing stickers instead of American ones. I'm sorry, we're coming down in this. I don't actually hate Tarantino that much. I just think he's a bit overhyped. Especially yeah, and, if you his references. He's he's also real easy to talk about in reference to auteur theory. It's it, like it's just it's not the lowest hanging fruit. It's just the most obvious example that most people will get. So speaking of lowest hanging fruit, uh, Russ Meyer was basically like if Roger Corman was less interested in horror and more interested in boobs. Uh, <laughs> That's not a joke. Literally, like, the first thing you will notice about a Russ Meyer movie, or Russ Meyer as an auteur, is that his movies are known for casting women with large chests and the sort of obsession his camera had with them. Uh, So, back to the movies. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is a movie from 1965. It's about three go-go dancers who embark on a spree of kidnapping and murder in the California desert. So, you can see why people draw the comparison to both Tarantino and Biller. But Anna Biller doesn't like this comparison. Uh, I want you to uh, open up the link that I sent you, which is to a tweet by Anna Biller. Okay, I am. Uh, it's taking a while. Ba, 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 ba. Is it me, my camera, and my attitude towards my actresses? Really? Russ Meyer. Hashtag Russ Meyer. And it's a picture of who I assume is Russ Meyer next to, I mean, a completely nude woman with enormous breasts. <laughs> on something. I don't know what the thing is, but yeah, it looks like some sort of like exercise equipment or something like that. Yes. But he's also turning to the camera and grinning like, "Can you believe I get paid for this?" It's tremendous. Anna Biller thinks anyone who rejects her work to sexploitation and Russ Meyer is completely missing the point. In a sight and sound interview, she rejected, quote, the word sexploitation or exploitation or sleaze or trash or any word that's tawdry or debased on purpose. Now, she also said, 
I don't want to get anyone who is interested in camp or camping it up at all. Oh, Anna, please. Uh, no, Anna. <laughs> our hearts. Uh, so you ask, okay, if she says that this work isn't campy, why are we even here? We're going to get to that in a second. Okay. To Anna Biller, her influences are more varied. And if she's the auteur, isn't she right? In her director's commentary for this movie, she instead cites movies like Gertrude by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Um, I'm quoting Kyle Kalgren's synopses here because I haven't had the chance to watch these movies. But Gertrude mm -hmm. is a movie about a woman who wants love and is willing to throw away everything else to get it. And in the end, she finds that she can't really accept the form that this love takes. There's also Leave It to Heaven, which is not by Douglas Sirk, but is from that sort of era of sick melodramas about a woman caught between her desires and her need to satisfy the desire. It stars Jean Tierney, who uh, is perhaps one of the most beautiful women ever on screen. I'm really excited to watch. Okay. There's also Black Narcissus, which has a nun who falls in love with a man. Miller I have seen Black Narcissus. Yes. Uh, they recently did a remake of it, too, which I would sort of think would you can't touch for a remake, but hey, what do I know? Yeah, it's on Disney Plus, uh, or at least in Canada. Um, but the original Black Narcissus, I remember it distinctly because it was so dramatic, incredible map paintings in terms of its scenery. And it was made by the Archers. And the reason I bring up the Archers is they were, it was a production company. But they had this really unique uh, gimmick at the beginning of the film. I can't say really unique. It's just unique. Don't say something <laughs> unique. It's always unique. It's a singular thing. Uh, they had a unique gimmick at the beginning of the film where for their logo, it would be a target and then an arrow would get fired into it. But the archers would tell you ahead of time what they think this movie is in terms of its quality. If they thought <gasps> it was an incredible movie... Yeah, if it would, if they thought it was an incredible film, it would land in the bullseye. If they thought it was like, eh, you know, it's a pretty good movie, it would land further and further off, right? I don't think they ever had any that would be like, well, the arrow missed the mark entirely. <laughs> but it, it was, it was a really fun kind of indicator of, oh, the producers think very highly of this film. They also produced uh, the slasher movie Peeping Tom, which they thought was a bullseye. The only Archer's movie that I've seen is The Red Shoes, and it's one of my favorite movies. It's also one of these great movies in terms of color saturation, if you've left The Love Witch and are looking for something else to just feed your eyes like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so Biller also references The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant and The Birds and Psycho. Title, which I'm not going to read out in full. Um, all of these movies, with the exception of Psycho, and Psycho is arguable, are centered around women who are trapped and in some cases try to use their sexuality to escape. So you can see why Psycho is like a, a maybe in that category. Yeah, yeah. These aren't Russ Meyer's women who have broken free of society, or later on, Tarantino's women who have broken free of society. They're women who are still trapped in society, still wanting to fulfill their own desires, but within the strictures that they've been taught to live in. 
So now we come back to auteur theory again. So as previously established, if anyone's an auteur, it's Anna Biller. She's the expert on the love witch. So how come so many people are getting something different from it? After all, she said it's not camp. We should really just wrap up the episode here, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, guys. This is the shortest episode of Is It Camp? Turns out it's not because it wasn't designed that way. Goodbye. The word of God says that it's not. The end. <laughs> uh, so then we get to the death of the author. It's a literary criticism term that very loosely stated means the work must speak for itself. So let's say, for example, you are a billionaire Scottish author who says 10 years after your last book has been published that one of the main characters is gay. Um, do we have to, do we have to include her, this woman? <laughs> Oh, I'm just including this as an example of maybe the worst possible person you could imagine. Somebody who really oh, misuses okay. their power. <laughs> okay, great. All right. Yes. Let's let's um let's talk about this trash human. Yeah. So this trash human who misuses their platform to hurt uh, vulnerable people says actually the main character of my one of the main characters of my book is gay even though there's nothing in the text to support that so you have to take that into consideration going forward even if you want to criticize my work by saying that there's no gay representation in it no i say that this character is gay that's it that's the end but is it really if readers never got that from the text it's the same as i could say my fan fiction is the best work ever written. It doesn't matter if the authors aren't, if the readers aren't getting that from the text. Only what the reader gets from the work is important. Yeah, so, like L Lord of the Rings clearly has yeah. aliens in it. Just because J.R. Tolkien <laughs> never wrote that the Romulans and the Klingons were in a huge war doesn't mean that it wasn't happening at the same time that uh, Sauron was forging the rings of power. Actually, that's a great example, because a lot of people take Lord of the Rings as a metaphor for Tolkien's experience in war, and he said, absolutely fucking not. None of this is an allegory. If you want an allegory, go to my best friend C.S. Lewis. Oh, a man who knows nothing about allegories. What? Said, Magic lion? This lion is Jesus. I will fucking kill myself. <laughs> So it's not, where, where I've landed is, it's not that all the critics are wrong. Um, I think you could argue certainly that some of them have a shallower view of the movie than Biller intended. But you can hold in your mind both that Biller hates that her work is being compared to Westmeyer and that so many people see links between them too. It's not just the one thing. If you're going to accept that Biller's the author of The Love Witch, that doesn't mean that you have to accept her reading of The Love Witch at the same time. Yeah, there's definitely a, a movement that's been happening more and more as, as I've been seeing it, that once once an artistic property leaves the author's hands and it's gone into the public sphere, it's not that they lose control of it, but you don't have control over how people view it. Right? Or let's do things like, um, I was thinking of Starship Troopers when you brought up Lord of the Rings and Aliens. Yeah. A lot of people get the wrong reading from Starship Troopers, which yes. is also kind of the point. 
because yeah, the I, people getting the wrong reading of Starship Troopers are getting the same reading that the characters inside the story are getting. Yeah, it's 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 wild and unusual. I mean, uh, uh, other examples are like uh, how the Babadook is now a queer icon, <laughs> even though that film has nothing to do with LGBTQ issues whatsoever. I mean, that started off as a joke. For those of you who don't know, the Babadook accidentally got li- uh, added into a Wikipedia list of queer cinema. Um, and once enough people noticed it, even after it was removed, um, people are still citing it as that. But yeah, absolutely. Once it's the people's, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I mean, again, th- things will get reappraised. This film will get reappraised in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 50 years' time. Who knows what future generations are going to look at this film as? Are, are they going to see this as the sexploitation film that a lot of critics saw it as? Or will they go in and go, no, 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 like, Anna Billers is absolutely correct. This is not at all like uh, Faster P- Pussycat Kill Kill. But yeah, that's my thought on theory of which um, it's a sort of movie that as soon as I finished watching it, I felt like I have to consume other people's thoughts on this movie so that I can try to figure out there's so much in this movie. I need to sort of get other people's reads on it, too, so I can just stay in it for longer. Mm hmm. It's it's uh it's a film where you can very easily be lulled into just focusing on the aesthetics or just focusing on the sex. And uh, I think, I think it is a rich text. Yeah. And to jump ahead a little bit, I think calling this uh, a sexploitation movie or just focusing on the sex in it um, is something that the film is deliberately trying to avoid in its use of nudity and it's, um, Mm -hmm on the star who is of course absolutely beautiful and is naked in a lot of the movie um but i think it's willingly trying to avoid a case of look at her boobs yeah oddly enough this is a conversation that i had last night with two of my friends um kevin and gerald hi kevin and gerald uh we were discussing the difference between naked and nude mm-hmm right what what is the difference between naked and nude and kevin brought up the idea that uh naked is something that is sort of uh spontaneously forced upon you right like oh you caught me naked whereas nude is something that you choose for yourself right Mm. my argument my argument was more so in that uh, naked and nude. Nude, it's one of like a semantics of class, right? Being nude is a classy act. It's an artistic endeavor. Being naked is just, right? Oh, okay. I it's, see that. And that's, that's my interpretation. And I think the same thing is definitely happening in this film. There's a difference between nudity and being naked. There's right? a lot of people that, naked. There's not a lot of nudity in it. See, I would argue the opposite way. I think there's a lot more nudity in that there's people choosing to be naked. Like there's 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 a Rather power than... dynamic happening. 
rather than us yeah. peeking in on this relationship between two people, you're saying that the uh, ceremonies in which the actors aren't wearing any clothes. Yeah, it it is a power dynamic, right? They've chosen to be nude in those scenes that, like, uh, our main character chooses to be nude as part of the magic, as part of the power that's happening, right? Nobody is naked in terms of, like, whoa, no, somebody's walked in on me, and, oh, I'm so embarrassed, right? Yeah, there's no uh, carry-on uh naked or nudity in this yeah everybody is reveling in their nudity right there is a love of the human body going on here and all sorts of human bodies too Mm -hmm. which is refreshing quite frankly in 2016 so yeah let's get into the the plot of the love witch so straight into the film she's driving a gorgeous red mustang convertible and smoking a cigarette perfect blue eyeshadow just all the colors in this movie pop right uh there's that famous anecdote of um alfred hitchcock when he was using technicolor right and somebody asked him on set like oh what are all the knobs on the camera for and Alfred Hitchcock was like, oh, this is how I, I change the colors and improve them. I, I turn this knob here and the greens get more green and the blues get more blue, that kind of thing. When really, that's not how it works, but yeah. you get the idea, right? All the colors in this movie, when they, when they need to pop, they pop. And one of those is her perfect blue eyeshadow. She's having an inner monologue about the love that she had jerry and we flash back to a man drinking and then keeling over dead (laughs) and that's all we know right he drank something from a goblet he dies and we'll see this again and again and again and this is jerry her ex-husband she's come from far away i think san francisco and and she has recently recovered from a breakdown Suddenly, yeah, she had a nervous breakdown after he left her. Mm-hmm. And that's how she puts it, right? Jerry left me. Suddenly, we're given the full frontal nudity right away of two people. We don't know uh, the context of this. She's getting tied up. She's naked. But we see a whole bunch of people around her. Two of them are clearly nude from the front, a man and a woman. So, thankfully, we are getting like a, a, a very even representation of the sexes. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to the car. She's as she's driving through murder. She wrote territory. <laughs> and this is, this is Cabot Cove. This is totally Cabot Cove. <laughs> and it's important she's, here. All of the close-ups on her are rear projections. So it looks like an old fashioned movie where what we're looking at in the foreground with her and the background aren't exactly matching up. But it adds to the charm oh. of the film. We, she didn't have to do this. She didn't no. have to do... Uh, and in, in a film like this, this is chosen very specifically. Mm-hmm. Whereas I will also point out a TV show that does this very poorly. Uh, one 
Bones, starring David Boreanaz <laughs> and Emily Deschanel, where their driving scenes are appalling to look at. Are they Just, not viewing the road at all? A, they're not viewing the road at all, but the rear projection that they use in it is uh, at the wrong height, at the wrong distance, at the wrong focus. Like, it just looks extra shitty in that show. A show that's pretty sleek looking. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, their budget couldn't handle people driving in a car. It all went to the steel laboratory and the clean white light. Yeah, yeah. So uh, our our protagonist gets pulled over by a very handsome man, a cop, who uh, sidles up to her car and explains, you have a tail, tail light out. And she is clearly shook. But we're not quite sure why. I mean, A, it's a cop. Yeah. We all get it. But B, it, it, but it feels like there's a little bit more happening. Maybe it's got something to do with that dead man. Who knows? She talks about needing to get a man and having to be tricky in order to do so. Right? She's, she's, she's inner monologuing about this, like, oh, I have to use my feminine wiles and, and all my tricks in my bag. She pulls up to this gorgeous old house. I was but- really disappointed that we did not get more... Because once they move inside the house, it's obviously a set. But this is one of the most beautiful houses I have ever seen in my entire life, on film or not. Absolutely. Good. Like, it's it's a tremendous uh, Victorian, Edwardian-style house. Uh, it's It's in this deep, dark, burgundy purple. Tremendous. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and... This is where I first noticed that despite looking like the 60s, there are modern cars in the background. She's not driving a modern car, but uh, the woman who shows up is driving a brand new BMW. This is where to to think of this movie in conversation with Elvira as well, because physically she looks quite with the pale skin and the dark, dark hair. But also Elvira exists in that. Is it the 50s and 60s or is it modern day? Who really knows? Yeah. uh, And that question doesn't matter. Like the, clearly the director's not interested in it because she's primarily interested in the aesthetic of the film. So this woman who shows up is Trish, the interior decorator. Uh, and she is friends with the woman who owns the apartment that uh, Elaine, our main character, will be staying in. Uh, yeah, Elaine decorated this apartment, so she has keys to it while Barbara, who owns the house, is out of town. Yeah. And Elaine explains that she's an artist using the, the apartment and that she's into uh, Wicca stuff, as Trish puts it. <laughs> Wicca stuff and they go up to the apartment they have a look around and it is very much in the hammer horror look it's sort of hippie-ish but it's also a little bit spooky tapestries no natural light deep dark colors hangings between rooms instead of doors 
just every aesthetic choice in this film has been taken care of. Nothing is by chance. It is absolutely planned to the last detail. So Elaine is talking to Trish and she says she just needs to get changed and they're going to head over to a nearby Victorian tea room. And they do immediately. And it is pink as fuck. It is it is pink and white. Uh, Kyle Calgren in his review says, they're in a cake. They are in a cake. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Like this, this movie doesn't stop for a second in terms of the aesthetics. Like it's it's full power to the aesthetics engine, guys. <laughs> it's like um, it reminds me a lot of the the black and white number in My Fair Lady at the race course. Ascot, yeah, at the Ascot opening day. Yes, where everybody's in you know big hat and lace and everything like that and it's all it's not even like shades of pink it's like three shades of pink that everybody's wearing mm-hmm. everybody got the memo it's wednesday <laughs> we're all wearing pink there's a harpist worn down singing original music if you wanted to get an idea how over the top this is i mean i love high tea i've I plenty of times. This is insane. This is not anywhere's high tea. No. <laughs> this is a fever dream of high tea. Yeah. All the servers are dressed as uh, maids, like they've yeah. got the black and white uniforms with the frill and the lace. Oh, just everything's incredible. Like silver tray. Yeah, and you know it's got the tiered. Uh, little trays that for the various cakes and and sandwiches that have no crusts. Amazing. I mean, we're we're just we're primarily going to talk about aesthetics of this film because holy shit, it would be hard not to. It's not that the rest of the movie mm-hmm. again is um, worth ignoring or anything like that, but when you are getting this all the time, it's gonna. Hmm. And it would be a disservice just to like slide over it and say, well, they go to a tea room and they talk about parapsychology and how Elaine wants a man. No. Anna Biller wants us to see this. She wouldn't have put the effort in to make this scene if it didn't mean something. Exactly. And when you think about how much more all of this costs in terms of effort and time, it's the point. Mm-hmm. So Elaine talks to Trish about how she studied parapsychology and how now she knows men. She understands men. She talks about Jerry, her ex-husband, and how he left her. And now she's been reborn as a witch. She says, men are like children, very easy to please, so long as we give them what they want. And Trish is very upset by this. (laughs) (laughs) And so this, this whole thing, they have this discussion that becomes these 
multiple layers of feminism arguing against each other, right? Like we have Elaine saying, if I can please a man, if I can give the man that I'm in a relationship with everything he wants, it'll be so much easier to manipulate him to giving me what I want. And what I want is love, right? Mm -hmm. So if I please him, then I get the thing that I need. Trish hates this because she thinks, why, why do I have to put in all that energy to please a man? A, she's already got a man. We find that out in a bit. But that's, it's not very feminist of becoming a, a slave to men. And I, I was curious about your ideas on this as well because – I actually agree with Elaine, right? Where it's like, if we give our partner in this manipulative way, if we give them what they think they want, we'll be able to get what we want out of it, right? It's not less feminist. It's just playing the game harder. I can see both sides, but I tend mm -hmm. to, it's not going to surprise anyone who has ever met me like literally since the time I was five years old that I agree more with Trish here Trish points out you know if husband sex every time he wanted it I would be completely worn out you know she doesn't want sex that often and sure she could placate her husband by giving it more often but that's not the point of her marriage to her the point of her marriage is that they're a partnership um, yeah. I see uh, what Elaine says in terms of Yes, simply if transactional. Um, but I think also the movie goes to great lengths to point out that doesn't actually know how this works. Elaine thinks that no. she can put in A and get, but it turns out B isn't really what she wants. Yeah, yeah, and it's her downfall. But I mean, like, but both of these views are valid views. You can play the game either way. It's yeah, like... absolutely. I think that this movie is very much in discussion with feminism. I think to call Elaine's argument anti-feminist isn't necessarily accurate because, again, this is an active choice that she's making. Yes. that That's the point I was trying to get mm -hmm. at, that saying that Elaine's point of view is wrong is is wrong in of itself that feminism isn't one road feminism is, a, is you know how we make of it like I, I remember an episode of dharma and greg of all fucking things <laughs> yay dharma and greg <laughs> where uh somebody uh becomes friends with like a stripper and dharma gets really upset because she goes oh my god how do i tell my parents that uh you know my friend who's going to meet them is a stripper. Will my mom say, boo, I hate that because it's selling your body to men. Or will she say, yay, I love that because you're using your feminine powers to give, make men give money to you. Right. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's both, right. It can be both. And it's how we use the tool. And I think there's also an ongoing conversation about this where you also want to think, okay, so these are what these Trish wants to be in an equal uh, relationship of partners, whereas Elaine approaches is beloved. And to get that, this I think you also need to look at it as 
what's driving these desires? Is it a case where Elaine wants this because this is what she's been told to want her entire life? This is something that I struggle with in, in my life and something I find really interesting is the the difference between what somebody wants versus what somebody thinks they're supposed which I suppose you could also argue is kind of uh, fundamentally a, a queer thought as well. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, in my I life, I found it very difficult to pick apart. Do I actually want this or do I just have years of being told that this is something that's acceptable to want, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so I think there's never like an end to this discussion because Every person's different. Every feminism is different. Um, but I think to say no, because Elaine knows what she wants and is taking an active role in that makes her germ feminist when she doesn't seem to examine what she wants from these men in any other way or why she wants it um, is sort of a, a dead end to me, theoretically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we're in agreement. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, this is why I struggle when things are labeled as feminist or anti-feminist, because I don't think there's anything that you can say largely stops at that. And, and we mean feminist versus anti-feminist in terms of uh, things like certain depictions in art, as opposed to things like, she who will not be named, who is you can say she was a poor woman living on benefits who managed to raise herself up. Isn't that a feminist story? Whereas you and I both say yes, and then she's using that power to hurt the most vulnerable other people. Society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. So, uh, Trish spends uh, this argument trying to call her out on sounding brainwashed by the patriarchy, right? I think she actively does say those words. Like, you sound brainwashed by the patriarchy. And a man walks in, and Elaine gives him the dagger eyes. This is Richard, Trisha's husband. And he comes up behind her and puts his hands over his, her eyes and goes, ooh, guess who? And she goes, ha, Richard, ha, ha, ha. Um, you know, it's, it's cute, but we know something's going on. Something else mm -hmm. is going to go on. And we cut to Elaine painting a picture of a woman with a unicorn holding a cup that has a bunch of men's heads floating out of it. And it's, it's a really jarring cut because now we start to cut around her doing various either artistic things or witchy things. And the film doesn't really make a a clear point of saying which is definitely which right that sort of thing where i'm really glad that this movie is not more popular because this is where the shrieking mobs of this movie is misandrist would come out which is again completely missing the point yeah because it's it's the art and the magic and the magic of art and the art in magic right mm -hmm. it's 
it's all together and it's one, right? She, she pours herself into all these things. And so she's mixing potions maybe and preparing bundles. And then I realize, oh, she's making candles. What kind of candles is she making? She's mixing ingredients. And then this is where she actually gets into a spell of sorts where she begs the goddess to bring her a man who will love her. And she lies down on that lovely pentagram uh, carpet. And it's, it becomes this sort of chant, but it's also somewhat erotic. Yeah, there's definitely um, a sense of... There's never a sense with the sexuality in this movie that Elaine is not enjoying herself. Mm-hmm. Except for perhaps one part that we... Uh, that we will discuss later. Much later on, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we now cut to her walking down the street, and all the men are stopping and staring as she makes her way to this magic shop, right? And... Boyoing? Yeah, and you, you have to wonder, is this the effect of the spell, or is this the effect of her just being a gorgeous woman? walking down the street, right? And, and again, like, is, is, Elvira, like, nobody else in this town looks like her. She's the only person wearing black or with knee-high boots or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Is her power something that she's magically conjured? Or is her power innate in the fact that she is a stunning and beautiful woman? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's great. I, I love this kind of let's blur the line between what is definitely magic versus what is just innate gift. Mm-hmm. So she goes into this magic shop uh, and sells a bunch of soaps and candles and crap. I think she actually says. <laughs> and uh, after she's done selling it, she goes to a nearby park, sits down and eats a sandwich while ruminating on why she's a witch. And so she's she's thinking to herself that she uses her powers to just get what she wants. She wants something, she's going to get it. She's a single-minded force. And right now, the thing that she is locked on is love. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't seem to care where she gets it from other than it being a man who is completely obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. And it's the obsession and that she men- wants that she ever locks on to throughout the movie are, I would argue in any way, you know, exceptional. No. Uh, so this is where we feet, meet the first of the men. And I had written down here, oh, he looks like a sleazy college professor. Fun fact, we find <laughs> out he is, he is a sleazy college professor. A brown corduroy blazer. Like, if they didn't want him to be read as that, <laughs> that's the one thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he, he's talking with this uh, younger woman who we can guess it's, her, it's his student because, yeah. of course, uh, but he's immediately transfixed by Elaine who's sitting a- across the park on a bench and he just leaves the conversation he's in and goes to see her. And she reads him like a book. <laughs> and he's just 
flabbergasted by this. He's just like, oh my God, how did you know? And he, in turn, continues to spill his guts to her. This right? is also and, reading, though, where it's something like, oh, I can tell that you love yes. animals and that you love nature. And he's like, how did you know? Who's yes. going to say, yes. no, I hate animals and nature? <laughs> Oh my god! Like you, you read my mind with that, and not not in a cold reading way, yeah. but just just that. Yeah, she's she's just really good at reading people. She's really good at understanding. She said earlier in the film she's into parapsychology. Mm-hmm. That is reading people. That's understanding how a man works. So um, he confesses that he's not married and that he's got this lovely cottage in a little ways away. So she says. Hey, you want to go fuck in the cottage right now? Right now, and he says, "Sure, <laughs> why not?" He literally I, looks like he cannot believe his luck. Yeah, that this gorgeous woman shows up out of nowhere, talks to him for two minutes, and immediately wants to fuck in his favorite place as well. <laughs> so. They hop into his car as his student watches him go away. And they arrive at his cottage later on that night. He immediately just, he's so taken by her. He's like, I, let's just do it here. Let's, let's have sex in the car. And she goes, uh-uh-uh, no, no, no. In fact, uh, why don't you drink all of this liquor that I have? And which he immediately does. Uh, and it's not just liquor. It's a potion. It's magic. (laughs) (laughs) She's a witch. (laughs) She she convinces him to go inside. He finally tells her his name. It's Wayne. Wayne and Elaine. Wayne and Elaine. Uh, She delays the fuck so that she can cook him a dinner as he prepares the fire. And this is where it does turn out. He is a teacher, English and French lit. And he describes himself as a libertine. Sarah, for those at home, can you describe what a libertine is? Okay, I don't know the (laughs) classical definition. But in the case of this, it's sort of like um, a gourmand of the flesh, I suppose. Uh, A Casanova. Yes. Yes. She immediately goes to, oh, you know, all those books from those eras are all so dirty. And he comes back quite sensibly with, well, actually, there there are a lot of different books published in this time. <laughs> One time that he, it does not immediately cow to her and go, oh, yes, it is a bit dirty, isn't it? Yeah, let me show you what I've learned from my dirty old books. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's like, I, I suppose you could call me a libertine. God, he's such, he's so sleazy. I mean, he's a very handsome man. This actor is a very handsome actor. I I want to talk about the acting, because I was sort of waffling back and forth. Is the acting bad in this, or is it just deliberately so old-fashioned? I think it's deliberately old-fashioned. I don't think the acting is bad. And I think the choices of the actors as well, the actors and the actresses, also falls into the aesthetic of the time we're trying to replicate. Because of all the men that we see in this film, uh, to me, Wayne is the most handsome 
at least to really? my set to my senses. That whereas, was not what I picked out for you. I, I know. Whereas Jerry, on the other hand, looks awful. <laughs> like, just no offense to the actor if you're listening. I'm so sorry, but he just he looks real scuzzy. And then later on, the cop. I never remember the cop's name because I only call him the cop. Um, Griff. Yes, that's it. Uh, he's he's so angular. <laughs> like his face this is, is full of angles. Your favorite. Oh God, no, 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 no. Also, he's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> when we get to uh, the scenes in the police station later on, it this is where the acting style really jumped out at me because there's so many beautiful people standing around in uniform. I'm like, this feels like the first five minutes of a porn. <laughs> so uh wayne sitting here being a, a douche all of a sudden he puts his knife and fork down he's he's two bites into his dinner and he goes oh i don't feel so good and all of a sudden he's tripping balls as the camera goes into kaleidoscope vision mm-hmm. and she strips for him she does a little dance and as she's stripping she starts to take off her coat which he immediately recoils at because <laughs> the inside of her coat is lined with this gorgeous rainbow pattern and he hates it. He's like, ah, oh, oh, your coat is too bright, which I totally understand. I have tripped on mushrooms once <laughs> and I had to tell I had to tell my boyfriend at the time, you need to put on sunglasses because I don't like looking at your eyes right now. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was that, and somebody had um, a haircut that I hated looking at. It hurt. It hurt me to look at his haircut. Not, it wasn't a bad haircut. I was just like, I don't like the texture. It, it, it's making me feel bad. So he put a hat on, and my boyfriend put sunglasses on. So I totally understand why him looking at this coat, he would be like, oh, it's too bright. I hate it. Uh, but it turns out all of her clothes are lined with this rainbow fabric, which is gorgeous because it was just black from the outside. But this is the thing. She's this, she's one thing to everybody else, but she gives the rainbow to him. Mm-hmm. So he takes her to the bedroom to ravish her so much kaleidoscope. And he has a nice butt, mm-hmm. which we see a lot of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good butt. And uh, you know, they, they have a, a sex scene. It is what it is. And post coitus, he begins crying. He's got too many emotions. He is having a real bad trip. <laughs> and he's saying no woman has ever given to him like that before. And he complains that he he hates all the women that he dates because they're pretty but they're not smart and smart women are ugly and i only fuck beautiful girls and i hate it it's just jesus christ dude it's not my fault and elaine's like i know baby i know and i was like okay i i get where this movie's going now yeah this is the tragedy of this man's life Oh my god. And he's just like, you won't leave me, will you? And she's like, no. I'll never leave you. Cut to her smoking on the couch while he screams for her somewhere else in the house. (laughs) And as she's sitting there... She's so turned off by this that she goes to sleep on the couch. Yeah. 
she she has her inner monologue again and she's just like he's such a pussy he's such a baby and this is where i've fallen in love with her now because i'm like yes you're a right girl this man is being an enormous baby elaine Ah! also incredibly turned off because every time one of these men does exactly what she wants and falls for her she sees them as a baby or a family they they are not what she wants at all yeah she wants so this like building baby i i want i want a man to open up to me but in terms of opening up i want to just find a deeper layer of the outer layer and that's what i want in a man just man all the way down it's nothing but men all the way down desperately but i also want somebody who's self-sufficient and doesn't need anyone yeah who will do everything for me but doesn't you know need me that i can go off and do my own shit yeah god yeah so she makes him breakfast the next morning and he looks like he's on his deathbed fun fact he is I'm glad you liked our joke. <laughs> he's had a real rough night because he's probably been crying all night. He says he, uh, he dreamed that he was calling for her and she wouldn't come. And she was like, exactly but I was, yeah, it's exactly what happened. She was like, no, I was here the whole time. And he's like, oh, I didn't feel like it. I thought you were far away. <laughs> I'm sorry for making fun of Wayne so much. But she goes into the next room, does a three-card spread, which turns up the Five of Cups, the Tower, and the Three of Swords. I actually forgot to look up what most of these were, but the Tower always means disaster in an upright position. And uh, guess what happens? Disaster. He dies. He's dead. He fucking dies. Yeah, so she goes out. It's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she goes out and picks some wildflowers and just her underpants. Uh, she pisses into a jar, and then using an old tampon, she shoves it in the jar as well. This is a funny bit because well, while she's making this, she says, it's so strange that men don't even know what a used tampon looks like. And later on, the detectives find this bottle and are like, huh, what's this in here? Looks weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, she wheels his corpse out in a wheelbarrow and buries it, burns her rainbow-lined dress on top, and leaves this uh, piss-and-flower tampon bottle on top of that. And then she steals his fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's now painting a new piece Uh of art when Trish stops by to check on her. Trish is leaving for a furniture convention. <laughs> this, this is a real thing. I actually read about some uh, about a furniture convention uh, somewhere in Europe recently where it's like the newest trends in furniture, but it sounds incredibly fake. It does. It's just like, I'm leaving for a plot contrivance yeah. and I won't be back for a week. 
So it leaves Elaine all alone, but it also leaves Richard, Trisha's husband, all alone. So now we go to a burlesque show where people, the people at the bar, at the burlesque bar, are gossiping about a murder that had a pentagram carved into it. And they immediately blame it on witches. Like, oh, I bet it's those dirty witches. It's like, I think of all things in this film, this is the most ham-fisted-y feeling thing of like... Okay. I would argue it's the very fact that the local dive bar is also a burlesque bar. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. It's, it's so wild. It's like, yeah, and the people of this town, real racist against witches for some reason. It's not like, they don't say Satanists. They don't say, you know, like, oh, some real wild teens or anything. It's just, oh, dirty witches queer reading of this where you know it's all of these people with strange habits and came from san francisco don't you know disgusting elaine's here now with uh barbara the woman that she's borrowing the apartment from and they chat about her use of love magic when this creepy dude shows up arguably the villain of yeah yeah he's he's a male witch not a warlock warlocks are different than witches uh a witch is a job not a sex thing and they say a blessing to the goddess and then they immediately get heckled by the dude at the bar about it go back to witch land you dirty witches (laughs) kind of thing this Peter Capaldi knockoff at the bar who only has long- <laughs> <laughs> he he sprung out of the ether simply with a hatred towards witches uh, and they they chat about the various classes that they teach at their witch school I guess, like, it's never really made quite clear if it's a coven, if it's a school, if it's a, like, a community outreach center. Uh, And a pair of near-identical twin sisters, quote-unquote twin sisters, show up. This Star Star and moon. They'll show up again later, but uh, not well. Creepy, creepy older uh, witch man talks about how a His woman's power. It, it's Gay-han. what? Gay-han. His name is Gayham. Creepy, Gayham. God. He talks about how a woman's power lies in her sexuality, and this is where I wrote in insert Jenna gif from Thirty Rock. <laughs> I'm going to use my. Don't say your sexuality. My sexuality. (laughs) And they give this short sort of history on the oppression of women and and witches by tangent. And how the oppression of women and sexuality and witchcraft are all intermingled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, For some reason, I wrote down, if you got to do all that for a man, maybe those dudes aren't good. I don't know what that was in reference to, 
but it I think felt important. Internalized misogyny that uh, Elaine never deals with. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's probably it. <laughs> Elaine reminisces about Jerry, who seems fucking awful. Yeah. And she's now, now because she's back in her apartment, she sensually applies lotion. As she also reminisces, reminisces about her awful father, maybe? Yes, he is credited as her father. It's just a voiceover. Yeah. Okay. So this father is basically give, giving her the, you're fat and you're ugly and no man will ever want you and blah, 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 blah. That, that kind of shtick, you know, the stuff that affects people. Yeah. The stuff that you hear once and never leaves your brain. No, that offhanded comment somebody gave you when you were 15 burned in there now you've never seen that person again you've forgotten who that person was but the comment stayed this is the point in the movie where i think it's the one time that maybe they couldn't get away with it ratings wise but uh elaine lies down on her bed and sort of runs her hands over herself and it's very obvious what she's doing but the film doesn't want to show you yeah it's masturbation guys what? Uh, and she gets these different men's voices echoing in her brain. There's Jerry, and there's her dad, and there's Gahan. And this is where I think it becomes really clear what her relationship to Gahan is. Because she's staring at this. Is it a stained glass window? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's, there's a flashback to a ritual uh, with the you coven. Start- and... It feels like an induction ritual of sorts, you know, like welcoming her to the coven and whatnot. But it's it's made pretty clear at this point that Gahan sexually assaults her in the um, in the course of the ritual. That this is what part of what happens in the ritual. And it's one of the few times that Elaine ever looks scared or upset in this movie. Yeah, yeah, and. It, I mean, part of the problem with it, too, is that the rest of the coven is standing around her, right? Nobody's interjecting. Nobody's saying, hey, wait a second. She doesn't want Maybe this. She doesn't want this. Maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Hey, hold on, buddy. Do you do this to everyone who comes into the coven? Because it's all about the sacred circle and the womb as the women's power and yada, yada, yada. So there's only one way that you can access that power, right? It's having sex with a man. Mm, God. Like, from, from my own witchy perspective, turns out <laughs> sexual assault is bad, period, guys. Yeah. Jesus. And she looks really rough after this. She looks like she's just come out of a panic attack. Mm-hmm don't know how she masturbated through that though i think the implication is that she didn't (laughs) okay (laughs) Uh, we we then cut to the police officer griff who pulled her over uh earlier in the film suddenly has a promotion he's sergeant now he's in charge He is notably in charge over the other, only other two police officers who are speaking lines who are both black. Yeah, and he's also a sexist pig. 
Yeah. And the girl who Wayne left, remember Wayne, remember the girl? Uh, she's here to talk about Wayne's disappearance. She explains, like, I, I was a student and, you know, we were talking and then he went off with this mysterious woman and we haven't seen him now for two weeks. But he does, but have, he does this have this house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the cops head over there and Elaine left the place as it was. Food out, all rotten. Come on, Elaine. There's no man to clean up for anymore. But, like, I mean, isn't the rule of going out into the wilderness leave the place better than you found it? She did leave it with one less creepy professor in her defense. Fair enough. The world is slightly better. Uh, and they find the grave after not looking too hard. No, It is just in his backyard. Yeah, but also... His backyard is the woods. Yeah. Anyway, we now cut to Elaine suddenly seducing Trisha's husband with cake and dinner. And another sexy she dance. Yeah, she says that her ex hated her and couldn't wait to get away from her. And he sympathizes with her. And then he, she gives him a giant glass of wine enormous goldfish bowl size yeah like it's encircling his head as he drinks from it <laughs> yeah you do have to insert your head into the bowl to drink from it mm -hmm. and she asks him well what turns you on and he said he says flying and he spills his guts about wanting to live the wildlife that he feels trapped in his marriage he just wants to go out and have a sordid love affair and she goes <laughs> well what if you did have a sort of love affair like right now right here right now with me and, and she he's does taking back. He's like i was just quoting the lines of my favorite talking head song and she's like no let's do it right now yeah she gives him a burlesque show of her own and i mean she's gorgeous she's great yeah uh, holy Samantha shit robinson makes this movie oh yeah no no you could have given this to many other actresses and I don't think anybody would have hit the mark quite like she does. From what I understand, she and Anna Biller were sort of workshopping this for quite some time and Anna Biller wound up rewriting some of it to fit Samantha Robinson. So this mm. is for her. Great. It's 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 great. So during this burlesque show she declares herself the love witch and that she's his ultimate fantasy. And just like Wayne, he scoops her up in his arms and they go off to bed and they have crazy sex. Except it's not that crazy. It's not very exciting. None of the sex no. in this movie seems very exciting. No, no. It, it, I think all the stuff leading up to the sex and the stuff around the sex, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. But the sex itself is very, like, she lies there Let's it happen. Hooray. Maybe she's maybe her problem is she's never actually had an orgasm. <laughs> you know what? That's a reading that I think you could take into this movie. Yeah. Yeah. She keeps looking for love, and what she's really looking for is a good fuck. 
<laughs> this is Job in Arrested Development. I know what a boner feels like, Michael. <laughs> uh, so the cop, Griff, is now going to go see a professor about witches. He gives this uh, this guy in his big office the bottle and the professor explains that it's a witch bottle. Ooh, and he gives a great big exposition dump. I love right this on the professor. <laughs> he feels exactly like the psychiatrist who comes along at the end of Psycho and for some people ruins the end of Psycho by explaining. Here's what the <laughs> but I found this guy uh, very fun to watch. It's it's delightful. I I, I like this is it. This is his scene. And he's going to mm-hmm. exposition dump the crap out of it. Yeah, and he explains all leather and green velvet curtains. Yeah, he explains the difference between good witches and bad witches, and that there's those who worship darkness and evil, naughty things, and those who worship light and good and lovely things, like stroking kittens and pressing wild flowers and swimming in lakes with your big flowy white dress on yeah all uh, the neo-romanticist paintings mm-hmm. what Griff is interested in is all the gross engravings on the wall yeah yeah I bet there's some boobs in here <laughs> so now we've cut to a ceremony with the coven and there is so much nudity everybody's nude nobody's uh, a few people who are just watching it are clothed, including Elaine. But yeah, everybody in the ceremony is nakedy, naked. And it's, again, another example of we've got a, a nice array of bodies. It's not just attractive people. There are older people. There are younger people. There are more Rubenesque figures. There are skinnier people. It's just like, yeah, here's a bunch of people. They all look kind of gross, naked, they standing are around. all completely white to the police yeah. station. I was like, is everybody in this movie going to be white? Yeah, and that is... I, I don't know if that's part of the commentary of this or if it's a matter of casting. Sometimes you don't know these things. Like, what is, But it feels like... That, yeah, it feels like there's a choice behind that. And so after their, their nude ring around the rosies that they do... Uh, they have a party with punch and cookies and bad music. Okay, I was just looking this up real quick because I'd seen a picture, a couple pictures of Anna Biller. Her mother is Japanese American and her Anna Biller herself white. Uh, I think it has to be a commentary. It has to be on purpose. Okay. Yeah, great. Good for her. <laughs> that the people in power are all white. Yeah. And we should overthrow them or something. I don't know. (laughs) So uh, Galen comes back and he touches Elaine's breasts and says that he he knows about her victims. And it's just like, dude, you can't go like two scenes without being awful. (laughs) She's now talking about breaking it off with uh, Richard, because he's become too clingy, and Again, we cut to Richard crying for her. Mm-hmm. We cut to Richard, who is 
falling apart. He's, he's become drunk. He's unshaven. His eyes are constantly watering. And Trish comes downstairs and basically begs him to come to bed. Right? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm just working on something. And, and it's, it's real smoky in here. That's why my eyes are so watery. I'm just getting some paper clips. He cries as he obsesses over Elaine. And it's really pathetic. <laughs> Whereas she thought that if she got a married man, this wouldn't happen again. Nope. What's the common denominator between all these men? If you smell shit everywhere you go, maybe it's on your shoe. <laughs> yeah. So now Griff is uh, in the magic shop and he shows the lady at the shop the, the witch bottle that he just carries around with him now, I guess. Like some kind of DNA because all, all of the evidence in this movie is handled horribly. All right, there's no gloves. What's the chain of custody going on? I mean, it's it's also a big thing to note at the police station. You get to see like people at desks. Nobody's got a computer. It's, it's wild, man. It's wild. And she talks about, oh, yeah, that's a witch bottle. But it's not like the witch bottles we sell. And she shows, them, shows him the ones that she, she has. She's like, oh, yeah, they're made by this nice new lady, Elaine. Here, I'll give you all the details. Elaine oh, is okay. what we are going to eventually learn throughout this movie. Yeah. I mean, relying on magic to do all the cleanup for you probably not best for your for your murders back to elaine as the cop shows up and now she's in a gorgeous multicolored outfit that's a bit of a halter top kind of thing with the long sort of mm, oh my god and she's doing uh witch science apparently yes lots of bubbling things <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a scene straight out of um, the Sword in the Stone, as Archimedes sits on top of something and goes, "What? What? What?" what? <laughs> he comes in and immediately he he comes in hot, saying that you know she killed all these guys and she breaks down crying and he has to comfort her. Yeah, and I mean on top of it, she acts super suspicious in this scene too yeah. <laughs> like you do not have to be a detective to look at her and go oh wait you got something to do with this don't you what do you mean yeah, exactly but they look into each other's eyes and maybe they're falling in love is it magic could it be yeah it's magic is it, it's magic it's, it's fucking magic guys <laughs> And he immediately invites her to come riding with him on his day off tomorrow. On his friend's horses he can borrow. I have a friend who's got horses. I can totally borrow them whenever I like. Oh, really? Horses, you say? Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're on a horse. 
says, you know, you're persecuting me because of my religion, which in fact is older than your religion. And he does seem to be caught up in this for a while. I mean, to be fair, she is using her religion to murder people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now they're on horses. And he's he's telling her that you're my girl now. What? Ugh. They've, this is they've known each other first date. Don't worry, it's gonna get worse. <laughs> uh, they kiss and they're interrupted by by a sudden renaissance fair. Yeah, it gets very midsummer all of a sudden. I was really glad there were no cliffs around. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe the cliffs are the ones inside us all along. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that the Ren Fair is the coven, and they're putting on this thing to sort of uh, mark the passage of seasons. They put on, like, a miniature play that's... Important. No, but they're, they're, they're... yeah, they're their own audience. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about, oh, you know, it's it's Lord Holly and Lord Oak, and Lord Holly will come and slay Lord Oak and win the Green Maiden and blah, 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 Renifer stuff, blah, blah, blah. Very young-looking girl. Like, young, early teens, looks like, which is just the more, uh, one of the more upsetting things in this. Yeah. We hope she wasn't. Yeah. And uh, these two show up, you know, Elaine and Griff. And Griff is like, ha oh, look, isn't this pleasant and, uh, and surprising? And Elaine's going, yes, surprising. Who would have thought it? What uh, a circumstance. What are the odds? Oh, maybe if we have fun and join in for a second and pretend to get married. That's the thing. They're like, look at this beautiful couple. Let's have a marriage. And Griff freaks out for a second. And they're like, no, no, it's a fake marriage. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it turns out it's a real marriage, guys. Yeah. <laughs> they're, getting ha- they're getting what's called hand-fasted, mm-hmm. which is a, a pagan ritual that's basically a marriage. Mm-hmm. Great. And he's just like, oh, I get to dress like a king and she gets to dress like a queen. And look, here's a unicorn. And this jester in very, very extreme face paint. Like it was unsettling. The the jester face paint, I couldn't stop looking at it. Yeah, he's completely white except for his lips and two uh, diamonds on his cheeks. The kind of thing where it it blends perfectly into white eyeshadow and everything like that. And you're kind of standing to go, I managed to do this without like blinding the artist, but also it's just uncanny Valley. Yeah. There is just something really unsettling about the jester, but in, in a good way. Right. And then we get a shitty song about love. Thankfully it is very short. Griff and Elaine feed each other uh, lunch and we hear their voiceovers at this point where Elaine is like, this is the best guy ever. And Griff is like, I'm never going to get married. 
yeah, he's all, I don't, I don't want love. And she's just, well, this is it. Finally, the thing I want. And yeah. this is the point at which I went, oh, shit, he's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean about the midsummer of it all, too. Just this growing horror. Yeah. Uh, back at the precinct, uh, Griff tells his partner to lay off the case. Right? And the and his partner tells him that Elaine's ex died of a drug overdose. And a bunch of people in her coven died of a drug overdose too around the same time. And Griff will have none of this. And he he says to his partner, who says I'm in love with her? Get the hell off my back. Pow! And punches him in the face. Bit of an overreaction, Griff. Yeah. Just a touch. Overreacting. I'm not overreacting. I know what I'm about. <laughs> uh, Trish is worried about her awful husband, walks into the washroom and finds out that he slit his wrists in the tub. He did. It's, it's he real did. unfortunate. He's dead. Yeah, he's dead. He's he's no Marat, so we're not going to mourn him that long. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I learned something in art history. <laughs> uh, now, back to the tea room, where everything is pink, 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 white, 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 and there's the dark cloud that is Trish now, sitting in entirely in black. Same. Boy, I sure miss my dead husband. And Elaine's like, so I met a new guy. <laughs> She's just like, oh, we're so in love. He even gave me this ring. That's an engagement ring. Well, it's not an engagement ring, but it's basically an engagement ring. Isn't it gorgeous? And I'm looking at it and I'm like, Elaine, he didn't give you that ring. You gave yourself that ring, didn't you? Yeah. She's certain he's going to propose for real any day now. Any day now. We've known each other for three whole days. Who knows? <laughs> Trish is pissed off. Rightfully so. <laughs> you could just yeah, see it Trish. coming <laughs> off of her in Wales. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Elaine then just goes, well, I've got something to do. Bye-bye. And Trish realizes that she still has Elaine's uh, not engagement engagement ring and goes oh shit by the way the stone on it it's enormous it's enormous well Trish goes oh shit I accidentally held on to her ring I better call her on my iPhone <laughs> fuck this took me out of the film for a second where I was just like what you can do this <laughs> It really was, like, the most jarring thing for me. Because the cars, I can forgive. Whatever, they're cars. And nothing else has made reference to the time that it's really set in. But the second you see an iPhone, you go, oh, there's a clear delineation of time happening. And I remember the last 15 years of history. And at no point was everyone decked out like the 60s. God, I wish they were, though. Can you imagine oh, a world yeah. where everything looks like this? Oh, wow. We, we like, oh, <laughs> uh, I just wish. I wish. Yeah. Just a clump. 
Mm-hmm. So Trish can't get Elaine on the phone and heads over to her apartment to leave her the ring, but also takes some time to snoop because, you know, while I'm here, she tries yeah. on a shade of lipstick that is the absolutely wrong look for her, as well as the blue eye shadow and falsies that Elaine wears, even going so far as to put on one of Elaine's wigs and her underwear. And it's getting real gross, Trish. You gotta stop. <laughs> like I, I get that grief makes us do weird things but this is this is a weird thing oh yeah and that's when she notices a small shrine of pictures of men look there's there's that guy who died and look there's that cop she's dating and look there's her ex-husband and look, there's what my husband. There's four photos. They set up under the mirror that she has been applying her makeup in. Yeah, yeah. Trish, interior decorator slash not observant. <laughs> <laughs> and she finds a package with a love spell that's been cast against him, including a, a birthday letter. A birthday card from Richard oh, yeah. to Elaine, which looks like it was printed out on an ancient printer and has a couple's photograph, like the kind you take when you get engaged. It's it's wild. Like I don't know if I know many people who have cheated on their spouses, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure they don't go to these levels. You try to keep Just it on the down low. <laughs> Uh, we specialize in boudoir photos and cheating. <laughs> now, whose well, house would you like these taken in front of? The wife who doesn't know anything? Great. Great. Uh, amazing. We have this extra special one. Just in case your wife is also cheating on you, you guys can get a discount together. <laughs> yeah. Well, Elaine walks in on this. And while you think, oh, this is going to turn into a bitch fest, Trish gets up on top of Elaine and fucking just, like, destroys her. <laughs> Elaine immediately crying, I... slapping hands. No, don't! Uh, um, and when Trish leaves, Elaine gets up and she's shaking out of fury and and fear all at the same time she goes i wish she would crash and die just crash and die crash and die crash and die and i mean we never find out she does uh we she doesn't because griff says later that he that she uh gave him the evidence oh uh, okay yes 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 all right so she didn't crash and die everybody hooray back to the coven another ritual thingy is happening to uh, seal the cop to Elaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Magic, yo. The cop That's is the drinking at the burlesque true. club. Elle is treating it like they're both there, but it's just Elaine holding a picture of Griff. Yeah, she wants him so badly. She's like, this has got to be the one. This one. Surely he's not going to die, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Right. By my own hand. <laughs> well, now Griff is drinking at the burlesque club because 
I guess they only have one bar in town. Who knows? That's the implication. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the twins from earlier, Moon and Star, are dancing very poorly on stage. And the waitresses even point out, why do we even let the witches dance here? They're terrible. They're real bad at this. They just do this flouncy stuff. They're wearing just like full body suits, but they're not taking it off. No. No. The burlesque dancer earlier in the movie is actually somebody who makes her living as a burlesque dancer. And she was incredible. These guys are not. No. Uh, I believe the burlesque dancer was April Showers. Thank you. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, everyone there hates the witches. <laughs> they just... <laughs> they're just, boo, boo. Elaine shows up. And uh, Griff and Elaine have a deep conversation about all the deaths that seem to follow her around. And she's like, sure. sure She immediately fesses up. She, again, terrible at this. And she's She's like, like, yeah, I did it, but I needed to. I wanted. Yeah. And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just sex magic that turned into love magic that turned into them dying. They just couldn't handle the love. She's so convinced that she has this hold over Griff that nothing's going to matter. And he decides to prove to her, no, you don't have any hold over me because I don't love you. <gasps> How dare he? Yeah, she's she goes on about I've been abused of love my whole life, and now I do what I want with it, however I want with it, and you're never gonna stop me. Me, a witch. She starts loudly sort of proclaiming that she's a witch and she does magic, which this is not the best time and or place to be doing it. <laughs> because yes. the bar the bar finds out that she's a witch, you know from her yelling at basically yes, and involved in Wayne's death. So they grab her to burn her and possibly sexually assault her too. I think that they're going to sexually assault her is really loud. It's, it's sort of yeah. the scene in West Side Story where they're going to assault Anita. You see about as much as you do there, but in both cases, very loud what the implication is. I've never seen a West Side story. <gasps> what? Samuel. I know, I know. I'm, I know. Uh, I'm a bad gay. <laughs> <laughs> film nerd. Yeah, I am a bad film nerd sometimes. Like, there's some movies where I'm like, oh my god, The Apple? You have to see The Apple. <laughs> and then other people and then other people will be like, so what do you think of Goodfellas? And I'm like, what? Goodfellas? What? Huh? It's right there you in know, the title. Mark- We're not called Greatfellas. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of Martin Scorsese that I've never seen because I don't care. But he honestly is great. He he's great, but I don't care. <laughs> uh, finally, Griff steps up and rescues her from the mob, drags her back out of it into his car, and peels off. You'd think that he'd be able to at least be like, 
hey, I'm a cop. Everyone fuck off or I'll arrest you or something. But, you know, cops. Yeah. Griff is still the worst in a town with Elaine in it. Yeah. They go back to her place where she tries to uh, put a magic on him. And he just stares her the fuck down. Yeah, he uses his Paddington hard stare. Yeah. And as the memories of her previous lovers resurface, we we see them all in these flashes and and she's getting so worked up, she just can't deal with it anymore and she stabs Griff to death. And then she sits back on the bed. Yeah, she stares up at a painting that we've been seeing throughout the whole movie that shows a woman stabbing a man and taking his heart out of his chest. And they're posed very... And there's a unicorn. Yes. And she thinks about him in his regal splendor back at the Renaissance Fair. And then kind of in a dream they both get on the unicorn that was there but totally wasn't there mm-hmm. and they ride off and onto into the sunset together but only in her dreams this the movie fucking rocks. it rocks <laughs> it's, it's great i recommend it to a lot of people but i think uh those who like it like it a lot it's I, I think the universal attraction that most people will get from this is just how gorgeous this movie is. Right? That is something that I think... I, I don't think a single person would watch this film, come out the other end and say, that movie was ugly as fuck. No. Right? It is... Yeah, it doesn't have bombastic kills and huge magical special effects and stuff. It's all very quiet, and it's just about, like, how do we deal with inner toxic masculinity? How do we deal with uh, inner toxic femininity? And and what is love? What what do we expect out of love, right? Mm -hmm. What do we want? What do we think we want? Mm -hmm. And is it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. It's worth it to murder all those people, Sarah? Finally, my sting operation has worked. You're (laughs) under arrest. (laughs) This is the sort of movie that um, only gets richer with discussing it. You said earlier it's a rich text. And I said finished watching it last night i had to find other people discussing it because i wanted to just delve into what other people thought and what other people got out of it mm-hmm. so yeah, Sam. sarah yes is it camp mm, it's not camp but my god it's it's a good movie it's a movie that that deserves being seen I agree with you. I was when I was reading um, an article on wearethemutants.com by Nora Berlatsky. Um, he refers to camp by one of Susan Sontag's 
uh, definitions, which is seriousness that fails. And I don't think that you can say the seriousness in this movie fails at all. No, no, no. It's earned. Yeah. I think that you could certainly say that this is a queer film, despite it being painfully heteronormative, but camp it is not. No. Yeah, but that's not to the movie's detriment, of course, and we we love this movie. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I love this movie more the more I think about it. Um, If you wanted to watch this movie just for to watch, other than the visuals, you might be disappointed. But if you are looking into this as a movie that will have you considering it and thinking about it and it in your mind for days afterwards you will enjoy this movie yeah this is i i think this is definitely a film that should be shown in film classes oh absolutely mm-hmm. so thank you Today on our exploration of The Love Witch, please subscribe on your podcaster of choice, leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes, and next week, we will be on our final week of Mystery Month, where we will be discussing last year's Malignant. Which is not the Florence Pugh movie, Malevolent. No, this is uh, the James Wan horror film that kind of very quietly dropped on uh, several streaming services. I believe HBO Max in the States. Mm -hmm. But the weekend that it came out, I remember my Twitter being flooded by people just being like, holy shit, this movie was just dropped. It had one trailer that came out. Nobody really knew what it was going to be about. And then they came out the other end going, that was not what I expected. And it blew me out of the water in terms of what came out of it. And then I saw a ton of people saying, this is camp. I said to myself, (laughs) well, if the masses are saying that it's camp, maybe it's up to us to see if we think it is too. I'm looking forward to this. Mystery month has been a rich text indeed. It it's been wild. I each each film has just been a different swing in a new direction, and uh, <laughs> new direction. <laughs> okay, so here's new direction. Every time somebody says new direction, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, let, let's see if this last week of mystery month will hold out, and we won't get any more jump scares other than the ones <laughs> in the film. <laughs> listening uh, till the end for a special bonus you can continue the discussion on our twitter i am at reese indigo all one word r-h-y-s spelt the welsh way uh and i am at sour citrus lady you can follow the pod is it camp pod until next week wait an hour before swimming watch out for snakes and stay camp (laughs) Goodbye!
I, I will say no. I will say no. The Love Witch isn't camp. I think because it's so thoroughly thought out and, and crafted that initially upon seeing like a trailer for this, I thought, Oh, this movie's going to be camp. It's going to be fun. It's going to be over the top and wonderful, but watching it and discussing it, I I've really come the other way going, no, this isn't camp because it is meticulously put together as, ah! Oh my God. <laughs> Why did you do that? Mom? <laughs> Jesus Christ. you can put that in at the end of the episode holy shit (laughs) fuck off mom get out of here no I don't care about your BTS sweater that you made you weirdo (laughs) she she came in she came in she came in and gently stroked my foot (laughs) absolutely quietly because I'm looking away from the door. <laughs> you, thought <I'd... laughs> you thought I died, didn't you? This is a podcast with a jump scare. <laughs> That's the episode title. Is it a jump scare at the end of the episode? 